Um, anyways, today we are continuing our uh, sermon series, going through the book of Ruth. Uh, it's called Women in the Bible. Okay, but today we're going through the book of Ruth. Um, Ruth. Oh, we got some issues over here. Um, so we're going through the book of Ruth. No, we don't. Oh. We're fine. Okay. Um, so Ruth is a short book, and it's four chapters long, but it's, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but one of the things I love about Ruth is it, re- it reads like a normal story. Um, when you read some of these books of the Bible, you see like Red Seas parting, and like people living in fish, or um, it feels a little bit fantastical. It feels a little bit like you're reading Narnia or something. But Ruth, it just seems like, it just seems normal. It's about a woman who's poor, working in a, in a foreign land, just trying to make ends meet. And so I, I, it's just so down to earth. And throughout this book, we don't see God doing these big, fantastical miracles. Um, but we do see that he's working behind the scenes the whole time. And I love that because so much of my life does, I mean, much of my life doesn't consist of big, fantastical miracles. Much of my life, it seems very ordinary and normal, and I'm just trying to make ends meet, and, uh, but we also, but it's the same thing. In my life, I see glimpses here and there, uh, uh, evidence is here and there that God is working behind the scenes the whole time. So that's what I love about Ruth. It's just so relevant to, um, uh, to our lives. Um, well, let's dive in. Um, we're not going to read the whole thing because it's four chapters. What I'll do is I'll, um, I'll summarize chapter one, read a little bit of it, and then I'll uh, spend a lot of time in chapter two, and, uh, and that's it. But just, just to introduce you to the scene, so chapter one uh, introduces us to this Israelite family, and uh, this family is living in the land of Judah, and they are Elimelech and Naomi. And uh, Elimelech they, uh, and Naomi, they are in a famine, so they move, they leave the, the tribe of Judah where they live to a foreign land called Moab, and then there they, ha- they find two wives for the two sons. Okay, so now they have a family of six. The husband and the wife, two sons, and then their in-laws. The two wives, they're named Ruth and Orpah, but eventually tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. Uh, ten years later, the two sons die as well. So now it's just Naomi and the two uh, wives. And uh, it seems, it's implied, it's not clear, but it's implied that the two, the two women are barren. They didn't have any kids during these 10 years. And so Naomi decides it's time for her to go home, back to Judah. Uh, but the daughters-in-law, they express they want to go to Judah with Naomi. Uh, they know that Naomi, she's a poor elderly widow at this time, and uh, there isn't anything like Social Security or so. So it's going to be difficult for her to sustain herself. So they want to accompany her back to Judah. And this is what happens, Ruth 1, 11 to 17. Oh. Okay. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. 
Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back to her. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So just to unpack some context for a little bit. So back then, there was this um, tradition held that if a, um, a man died childless and left a widow, um, if at all possible, the man's brother should marry that widow or, or at least have sexual relationships with that widow and, uh, and their children would sort of carry on the lineage of the older brother. Okay, so that was sort of the tradition. And so when Ruth and, and uh, Orpah, they sort of volunteered to accompany Naomi, part of that was the hopes that maybe one day they could continue the legacy of Elimelech because Elimelech right now doesn't have any uh, offspring. Right, so it's sort of this dedication of we want to continue the legacy of Elimelech and, uh, she, and Ruth was just committing, but it was a big sacrifice, right? Because you see, Ruth was a Moabite, uh, and during this time, the people of Israel, they were often at war with neighboring countries and neighboring tribes, groups of people, and oftentimes people, they viewed foreigners with skepticism. And as Naomi said, it, it's possible that if, okay, if Ruth went with Naomi, uh, I mean, sorry, if Ruth stayed in Moab, she could have found another husband, but moving to the land of Judah, it would have been very difficult. You know, first of all, uh, wait, this, I, this prospect of waiting for such a long time to, you know, so that a husband would grow up and then, you know, and then you marry someone significantly younger than you. But you know, that's something that it was a possibility, but that would have been very uh, difficult. And if that didn't work out, you know, finding another person to marry, a lot of folks wouldn't want to marry someone who was a Moabite, especially someone who had been previously married for 10 years to someone else. So it was a huge sacrifice, but that was what she was willing to do. She was willing to pledge herself to Naomi and travel to Bethlehem. Okay, so let's see what happens next. This is Ruth 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We'll go back to Boaz later. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in the fields belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So we'll talk about Boaz in a bit, but let's talk a bit about Ruth. So here's what I love about Ruth. Ruth, she, she is um, a go-getter, okay? She just, she came into this foreign land. She probably doesn't really know anybody, but she's like, you know what, I'm going to go find a job. And she just went out there and found a job. You know, she easily could have uh, said, this is a scary place to be. I, I don't know the culture here. I don't know the people here. I don't know how to survive here, so I'm just going to hang out at home. But instead, she's like, you know what? I'm going to go look for work. And, and just to give you some context, what is this picking up leftover grain business? Okay, so back in these days, uh, agriculture was a big business. And, there, and when you think about people who work in agriculture, there's sort of three classes of people. Okay, so the first class is the landowner. All right, so this is someone like Boaz, the top of the food chain. Um, and then secondly, there's the landowner's employees, the people who work for the landowner. We'll be introduced to some of these folks later. They, they're called Boaz's servants. 
Uh, but these are the people who are employed by, by Boaz to harvest the grain for Boaz, and uh, they would be paid a wage. They would harvest, so the Boaz would keep the grain, and they would be paid often grain in the form of payment. And oftentimes, they were split into male servants and female servants, so the male servants would go first, and they would cut down the grain, and then the female servants would follow, and they would gather the grain. All right, and then thirdly, there were poor people uh, who can't even get employed, and they're forced to scavenge for food, and to provide for these people the Mosaic Law, the law in the Old Testament, they mandated that whenever a landowner's employees uh, were harvesting the grain, they were intentionally to leave some grain behind for this third class of people, the poor people. Uh, they were to intentionally not harvest it totally clean, just to be a little bit sloppy about it, so that those who don't have any means of supporting themselves, who can't find work, they could just follow behind and gather the grain. Okay? So you see this, for example, in Deuteronomy 24, 19, and it says, When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. All right, so this was just sort of, this was the, if you wanted to be a, uh, you know, a generous landowner, you would intentionally leave behind some things. You wouldn't gather them so that the poor could follow your service and, and gather those grains. And it's interesting because in this verse, there's three categories of people, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the, poor, and the widow. So the, the, these categories aren't, uh, it's not the categories that are, you know, that are um, the specific categories that need to be highlighted, but basically these categories represent the marginalized of society, the poorest of the poor. Uh, in this society at this time, if you were a foreigner or if you were an orphan or if you were a widow, that means probably it would be very difficult for you to survive. And so basically this passage is saying those who don't have any other means of supporting themselves, if they don't have the family structures to support themselves, we as a society need to step up and care for them, okay? Um, and interestingly, two of these categories describe Ruth. She's a foreigner and she's a widow. Okay, so let's keep going. Uh, back to Ruth, starting from verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does this young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is, a, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and was remained here, has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Okay, so we see she's a hard worker. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. She, he's not a, she's not a literal daughter. This is just sort of an expression, an affectionate expression. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. All right, so Boaz finds out Okay, there's this new woman. He seems like he's attentive to what's going on. And he discovers who she is, and he does a number of things for her. All right, so firstly, he tells Ruth not to gather grain elsewhere. In other words, he wants to be the one to provide for her. All right, and secondly, he tells her to gather grain with his female employees. Now, this is interesting because remember, at this time, usually the, the male servants to cut down the grain, the female servants to gather the grain, and then... The poor, the third tier of people, they follow after that. But he's actually saying, actually, no, go gather with 
my female employees. He's elevating her as if she was an employee, even though she wasn't, okay? And then, and then thirdly, he tells the male servants not to touch her. And uh, it's implied here there's probably a culture of uh, men abusing women who are poor or widows. And, um, and so it could be dangerous if you uh, didn't have much status to be working alone. And so he instructed his men specifically not to harm her. And then on top of that, he also gives her permission to drink from their water jars. Uh, they have their own, you know, basically like a kind of like a workroom cooler, basic equivalent. And he's saying, even though you're not an employee, you can go there too and drink from these water jars. Okay, so why is he doing all this? And especially for someone he just met who's a foreigner. Well, Ruth wanted this very same thing. This caught her off guard as well. So verse 10, at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servants, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's dedication, her commitment to Naomi, that he wants to bless her. And he says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And here's what I love about Boaz's um, heart, okay? You know, he has this vision for what Israel should be. In his mind, Israel should be this place, should be this land of blessing, of this land of promise, such that if any foreigner ever wandered into the lands looking for refuge, Israel would be this place that would provide that refuge. And if, and if, this, and if he happens to come across such a woman, a woman who is poor, who is suffering, who is looking for refuge, who is, who is willing to take this leap of faith to come into Israel, then he will ensure personally that she will find that refuge there. That's the vision that he has for Israel. Well, let's keep going, okay? Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some socks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Okay, so, I mean, Boaz is going not just an extra mile. He's going like an extra, I don't know, like many miles, all right? So just, just think about how ridiculous this might seem. This is a total foreigner. He just met her, but he's not only giving her water, but he's giving her cooked food. And uh, he's also telling his servants, hey, actually, don't just leave these stocks for her, but actually give them the stocks that you've already bundled, okay? And so what I love about Boaz here is, is he's going way above and beyond the minimum requirements of the law. You see, the, the minimum requirements of the law, it was just, hey, if you happen to forget some sheaves, you know, don't go back and get those sheaves, you know, just... Make sure you leave some for the foreigner. But he's going way above these minimum requirements. He's saying, hey, don't threaten this woman. Hey, actually gather with these female employees. Hey, actually, here's some water. Actually, here's some food. He's giving her so much. 
Um, and I think this story should challenge us in how we think about the underprivileged and the marginalized and the foreigners among us today. Now, I think I want to be clear. I think it's perfectly legitimate for us to have a variety of opinions when it comes to uh, politics. Uh, and especially, you know, immigration, I think, is a relevant issue here. I think it's totally appropriate for us to have a variety of stances when it comes to how we think about the issue of immigration. I don't think the Bible prescribes for us specific policies, especially, you know, with a secular government. And so, you know, when you think about you know, how many refugees should our country allow in every year, or how much money should we invest in border security, or what should our country do with people who are undocumented, I think it's legitimate for Christians to have different opinions on what to do with these matters. These matters are not specifically addressed by the Bible. However, I think regardless of what we believe, I think the example of Boaz shows us that whatever you think about immigration at the political level, there is a specific way we should think about immigrants at the personal level. There's a specific way we should care for foreigners as individual people. So you can have thoughts about, oh, I think we should have this number of foreigners or whatever, this number of immigrants every year. But I do think Boaz's example shows us we should go above and beyond the minimum requirements of the law in our attempt to care for foreigners. You know, um, sometimes there's a lot of rhetoric uh, against foreigners. Um, people may say stuff like, oh, I don't want immigrants in my community because immigrants, they take jobs away from citizens. All right, well, I can imagine, imagine you're Boaz's servant. I can imagine someone like them saying the exact same thing, right? We're, we're working hard, we're working our fair share, and why is this person, who is this new person from a different culture, why are you allowing this person to gather grain along with us? And why are we pulling sheaves for this? You can say that you can make the same case. People back then were probably thinking the same thing. Right? Sometimes people may say today, you know, immigrants are just a drain on our resources. And I can imagine people back then, they might say the same exact thing, like, why are we providing water for this person who's not, who's not one of us? Or people may say something like, you know, immigrants are here just to find spouses so that they can become citizens. Well, spoiler alert, Bo Boaz later marries Ruth. And so, I mean, imagine you're uh, like an upstanding a man in the, in the society, and you have a daughter, and you're looking to find uh, someone for this person to marry, you might think, like, why would, this person seems totally qualified for Boaz to marry, why would Boaz marry this, this foreigner? And so, you can imagine, you know, some of the rhetoric that we have today, it's not new rhetoric, I mean, every, every society has had this rhetoric, and I can imagine people back in Ruth's day, would might, they might have said this very same thing. But I think Boaz's example you know, it paints a very different picture of how we should view uh, this idea of uh, who is our people uh, and uh, what is this land for, what are my resources for. Um, it's a very different vision of how to live life. You know, he's not hoarding everything for himself. He's not hoarding everything even for the people who look like him who uh, live like him, he, he has this heart of giving away things and blessing people who are different from him in order to show what a great place Israel is. Um, and and, and he, in his mind, what it means to be an Israelite is to be um, a man of blessing, to be a person who wants to give stuff away as a blessing to other people, even to non-Israelites. 
Um, and, and, and I think it harkens back to the promise that God uh, made to Abraham in, in Genesis 12. He says, I will make you a blessing so that you will be a blessing. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I think that's Boaz's heart. Like, he understands Israel is this place of blessing. They have so much abundance. And so as a result, he wants to bless others. I think this is a challenge, you know, for us as we think, you know, when we think about the foreigners among us, do we have the heart of Boaz? And again, I want to be clear, it's, it's okay that different uh, political opinions, what we should do as a, as a country as a whole or as a state or whatever, but I'm thinking about us, the church, the people of God. Are we concerned about those who don't look like us, about those who look different from us, about those we view as outsiders? Do we, like Boaz, go out of our way to serve those who are marginalized and disadvantaged? Um, you know, in this context, it's talking about foreigners, but I think it's appropriate for us to think about, it doesn't have to be necessarily foreigners, but just people who are outsiders, people who don't fit into the church. Maybe it has to do with their politics, maybe it has to do with their theology, maybe it has to do with their sexuality. There's all sorts of reasons why people may feel excluded, or maybe people may feel like foreigners. But when outsiders come into the church, do we have the same heart of Boaz? Do we say, you know, I recognize you're taking this leap of faith, and you're coming into this place. You're looking for refuge. I want to make sure, personally, that you will find that refuge. There's a lot more we can read about Ruth's story uh, in chapters 3 and 4. Later, Boaz volunteers to become a guardian redeemer, and uh, he buys Elimelech's old land uh, in, in order to assure, basically, that Naomi and Ruth are financially secure for the long haul. And we also see Boaz and Ruth, they marry together, and uh, the way they get together is a little bit scandalous. You know, I would imagine a lot of um, uh, youth group leaders would not recommend the, the means by which Ruth and Boaz got together, but we won't have time to get into all that. But, uh, so there's a lot more to unpack, but I want to just focus on um, this Ruth and Boaz uh, scene and Ruth too. okay? What can we learn from this story? I think one concept this story provides some guidance on and uh, how we think about is this idea of privilege, okay? Um, uh, so, I think we can make the case that Boaz sort of represents a stereotypically privileged person in society, and uh, Ruth represents a stereotypically underprivileged person in society. Now, I understand you know, the word, even the, the concept of privilege can be a little bit controversial, and I think people sometimes mean different things with this word, so just so we're all on the same page, okay? What I mean is this, everybody, everybody is privileged in some ways, and everybody is underprivileged in other ways, okay? We are all an intersection of different identities, and because of who we are, because of our upbringing, because of our environment, because of our culture, well, there's all sorts of factors, but because of who we are, sometimes we are more privileged in certain areas, and sometimes we're underprivileged in other areas. So, for example, if you were born in a wealthy family, then you have privilege when it comes to wealth. It means you probably never had to stress out about what you were going to eat that night or something like that, Okay, if you are male, then you have some level of privilege in that arena uh, because it means you don't have to think as often about things like sexual assault or it means usually you can talk loudly without people thinking you're uh, aggressive or something like that. Okay, if you're able to go to college 
it probably means you have some level of privilege because, and especially so, if you were able to graduate with little to no debt, that means you have a leg up on others in society. Okay, so the, so there's also different categories, all right? So the purpose of understanding privilege is not to make privileged people feel bad, okay? I think sometimes that's a takeaway people have, but that's, that's, that's not an appropriate takeaway. So the, the purpose of understanding privilege is not to make privileged people feel guilty for being who they are. The purpose is so that we can better understand people who are different from us. That's the purpose of this concept of privilege, okay? And this is important, also understanding, this is also important when we're talking about privilege. Privilege doesn't mean that underprivileged people don't have responsibility. I think sometimes that's another angle people have, as people say, oh, people are underprivileged, and so they can just get away with things. That's not the point either, okay? So if someone who is underprivileged, for example, commits a crime, all right? So yes, what we can do is we can say, oh, we need to understand the circumstances around this person's life that maybe uh, make this person more desperate, maybe make this person uh, more willing to do things they wouldn't do otherwise so that they commit a crime. However, we, we still want to be clear this person did something wrong, all right? And so under, understanding privilege should not take away moral culpability, a moral responsibility, all right? So we need to hold these two things in tension Social privilege and individual responsibility, okay? So I'm just laying the scene. Okay? This is why this is important, all right? As I mentioned, Boaz is a stereotypical privileged character. He's male, he's wealthy, he's an Israelite, he has a well-respected family lineage, all right? He's sort of a man of privilege. Ruth is a stereotypically underprivileged character. She is a foreigner, she's female, she's poor, she's a, a widow, Okay, and, and here we see the perfect example of two different things. On the one hand, you have someone of privilege using his privilege to care for the underprivileged, and we see someone who is underprivileged taking personal responsibility and taking initiative. And it's such a beautiful picture, and I think it runs against so much of our conversations today on privilege, you know, because oftentimes, you know, we, we want to uh, basically hate on the people with privilege, and we want to um, sort of uh, make all sorts of excuses for people who don't have privilege. And, and I think there's, you know, there's some legitimacy in, you know, it's a complex, it's a complex thing, okay? But let's, let's think about this, all right? Boaz, he had a law to meet. It was to leave uh, grain for people who are underprivileged. But he's not just meeting the minimum, the minimum requirements of the law. What he does is he goes out of the way to sacrificially address her needs, okay? giving her cooked food, giving her water, elevating her status so she can work along his employees. And I think that's the challenge for those of us who are, who are in positions of privilege. It's not just enough to meet the minimum requirements of the law. It's not enough just to say, you know, I pay my taxes, and some of my taxes go to the poor, and so I'm good to go. I think the example of Boaz calls us to go above and beyond the law. If you have privilege in some way or form, whatever it is, then I encourage you to ask yourself, how can I employ my privilege to exercise generosity and compassion for the underprivileged? How can I employ my privilege to exercise generosity and compassion for the underprivileged? You know, you see in the kingdom of God, all gifts are meant to be shared. 
This vision that Boaz had for Israel is the same vision we have for the church. God never gives gifts just to be hoarded. Sometimes, you know, when people, uh, again, when people talk about privilege, I think about privilege is a bad thing. Like, maybe the more privilege you have, the more guilty you're supposed to feel. But I think the biblical way to frame it is the more privilege you have, the wider the opportunities you have to be a blessing to others. Right? So, being in a place of privilege is not a bad thing. Don't shy away from the fact that you have privilege. See that you have the privilege, and then utilize the privilege you have in order to extend generosity and compassion to others. Okay, so again, wealth isn't bad. Status isn't bad. Privilege isn't bad. God blesses us with those things so that we can be a blessing to others. Okay, now let's talk about Ruth. So one thing I love about Ruth is she, is she took initiative, Okay. She took initiative to look for work. She took initiative to ask Boaz's employees, hey, can I gather wheat here? She worked diligently. You know, there's that verse saying she barely rested at all, even though it was hot. And I think this is important because coming to the Lord for refuge, it doesn't just mean you do nothing. When you go to the Lord for refuge, you don't just sit around and twiddle your thumbs and wait around. Like, coming to the Lord for refuge sometimes requires that you put in hard work. You got to intentionally not be lazy, and you got to do things that are difficult, do things that are hard, stretch yourself, go out of your comfort zone. Sometimes that's what refuge requires. You know, some people, when they're not doing well, all they really do is blame the system, okay? They blame the government, they blame uh, corporations, they blame the media, they blame their parents, they blame their friends, they blame their boss. They're always blaming other people. And, and sometimes blame is warranted, okay? So I'm not saying never blame anybody. Sometimes it's appropriate to call things out and you know, recognize here's a systemic issue going on and you want to advocate for change. So those are all good things. However, what I'm saying is even though some of these institutions should bear some of the responsibility, and uh, as a result, they sort of make things more difficult for other people. We as individuals, regardless of what environment we find our in, ourselves in, we also need to bear responsibility. We need to step it up sometimes, despite the circumstances that are thrown at us. And we need to choose the path of commitment, the path of dedication, the path of faithfulness, the path of uh, perseverance, just like Ruth did. So that's my challenge for you. If you are in positions of underprivilege, how can I exercise commitment and perseverance despite my underprivileged circumstances? Um, you know, what Boaz and Ruth have in common is that both of these folks, they took, they took action. Both put the trust in God. And they said, you know, I believe God will work things out. I believe he has a way. I believe he's going to provide. But I'm also going to take action as well. I want to step out in faith. I want to do the hard thing. I'm going to go above and beyond what's called to me. And what I love about this story is, you know, it's clear throughout the story, you know, it just so happens that Ruth worked on, the, on Boaz's field. So what I love about this is it's clear that God was working behind the scenes the whole time. But it's also clear that it wasn't just God working. It was God's people working as well. You see, sometimes the way God works is through just setting up circumstances. So you have sort of these coincidental happenstance incidences, and that's how God works. But another way God works is he works through people. 
He works through the actions of people, the decisions of people, the sacrifices of people. That's the way in which he works as well. So I just want to encourage you, you know, don't let your, um, sometimes we say, I'm waiting on God, okay? Don't let your waiting on God be an excuse for laziness. Take action. If you're looking for God, if you're looking for refuge, if you're looking for provision, sometimes you got to take action. Uh, show generosity and compassion. That is a way to take action. Show commitment and perseverance. That's a way to take action. But I also want to clarify, you know, ultimately the story of Boaz and Ruth, it's not just about, oh, here's some godly examples to emulate and follow these examples, you know, go Godspeed. But the characters of Boaz and Ruth, I think in many ways, they also point to the character of Jesus. He's the ultimate example worth following. You know, Jesus, in many ways, was like Boaz. You know, he chose to go out of his way to serve us. He didn't just meet the minimum requirements. He didn't just give us, uh, you know, some encouragement here and there. Hey, I bless you here and there. Uh, but, it, but he also went more than Boaz. He went further than Boaz. He didn't just give us water or grain. He gave us his whole life in order to lift us out of spiritual poverty, in order to adopt us into a new family. And he promises that if you go to him for refuge, he will welcome you in. You will be safe there. So I pray you, you meet him there and you'll be inspired by that generosity and by, the, by that compassion. And in many ways, Jesus was also like Ruth. You know, Jesus was so dedicated to us, just like Ruth was so dedicated to Naomi, Jesus was so dedicated to us. So that even though we were sinners, we were enemies of God, children of wrath, Jesus pursued us still. He was so dedicated to us that he voluntarily traveled to our world, lived as a foreigner in our world. He was despised and condemned by many. He was judged by others. And he didn't just sit, sit idly by, uh, but he walked with us through the valley of the shadow of death and even endured the cross for us. And so I encourage you, run to him if you're looking for refuge and be inspired by his example of commitment and perseverance. Regardless of who you are and where you're feeling, what you're feeling, um, whether you, know, you feel more tied to your status as a privilege or underprivileged, um, I just want to encourage you, go to Jesus. Find Jesus. Seek him out where he may be found. Turn to Jesus, be transformed, and live the way Jesus lived. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the story in the Bible of just these two extraordinary characters of Ruth and Boaz and the way they lived. Uh, God, I pray that that would inspire us to live in radical ways in our own lives, to show generosity and compassion, to show commitment and perseverance. But I also praise you even more for this example of Jesus, this person of Jesus, who didn't just live out a story, uh, but he, he saved us, and he redeemed us and rescued us. He's more than just this moral example, but he's our savior and our redeemer. And um, he's the one who set us free and ransomed us. And he declared total victory. So God, I, I pray for those 
for those of us who may, maybe we feel like we're suffering like Naomi or like Ruth and we don't know where to go and we feel like outsiders. We would pray that you would meet us and that we would find you and when you would show us that in you we have a home, we have a family, we have prosperity. And I pray for those of us who um, we're just, we sort of have the custom of just going through life and doing lazy, selfish things for ourselves. And I pray you open up our eyes to see the mission field, to see the harvest. And uh, you help us to see how you are calling us to give of ourselves, to be generous and to be compassionate the way Jesus was with us. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.